Hey everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Black Gen Columbia podcast. Here at the show, we try to bring in emerging student leaders and business executives to talk about the state of the investment banking and the alternative investments industry, with a unique focus on how to succeed and break into these sectors as a person of color or underrepresented minority. My name is Roger Villarreal, currently a third year student at Columbia. And in the third episode of the podcast, I have with me a very special guest, Shek Kamara, one of the founders and co-CEOs of Black Gen Capital. Along with co-founding BlackGen, Shek has built up an impressive resume during his time at Cornell. He has had previous experiences at Prince Street Capital, Morgan Stanley, and D.E. Shaw. He is currently a senior at Cornell Dyson School of Applied Economics, where he is, a- where he is majoring in applied economics with self-studying experience in computer science as well. After graduating this spring, he will be joining Evercore as a full-time investment banking analyst in their M&A group. Uh, thanks, Shek, for taking the time to join me today, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for, you know, our conversation today. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Thanks again for for taking time to do this. I think it'd be really good uh, just because I don't I don't want anybody to like assume that, you know, uh, they know enough about your background. But if you could just like walk me through uh, what was your your time like before you started at Cornell and, you know, why did you ultimately end up there? And, And maybe too, if you could just tell us a quick overview of of uh what what inspired you to start going into finance as well wow yeah that's a very loaded question um so i'll start off with kind of my early experiences Uh, so i grew up in harlem new york um and you know in this environment it was very hard to kind of imagine um life beyond um harlem Uh, just because you know nobody around me really asked questions like what do you want to do when you grow up um, you know, what do you want to be when you're older and things like that? But there was a there was a day I remember vividly that essentially changed my life. Um, my older brother, he asked me, like, what do you want to be when you're older? And that was the first time I ever heard that question. And I didn't know at all. Those words were completely unfamiliar to me. And then he eventually said, like, Shek, you can be anything you want in this world. Uh, And at the time I was 10 years old and those words were so powerful to me because it provided me with a lot of hope and just like inspiration to achieve uh, anything that I put my mind to. And since then, I've always had this drive and inclination to help spread that message to the entire world. Uh, And so, you know, fast forward to, you know, like college at Cornell, that's how I you know, kind of had the inspiration to start Black Gen because I was fortunate enough to receive a lot of these opportunities uh, at various different finance organizations at Cornell. But then, you know, I wanted to spread the message to other folks that looked like me and other groups that didn't necessarily have these same resources and access to opportunities. And so this message of just hope and, and providing access is what allowed Black Chen to come about. And, you know, this is also just a recurring theme in a lot of other, um, you know, initiatives that I've been a part of, such as uh, consulting with several nonprofits across like uh, Africa, including one in South Africa, where we help them expand their initiatives from high school students to college students and increasing access there uh, to different employment opportunities, and things like that. Uh, as well as another uh, non, um, you know, initiative in Rwanda, where we helped out students uh, 
out of high school and developed the Rwanda IT lab so that students could get access to modern technology and equipment. And so when looking back at, I guess, my story, I guess it really started from that day when my brother was really like, you can be anything you want in the world. And I think that message to me is so powerful that I want to spread it to the entire world. Yeah, definitely a really inspiring message. I, I really appreciate you just like giving us a window into that part of your life and just the role that it's played um, as far as up to this point. Do you think going into Cornell, you always had that almost like that spirit of wanting to give back? Or is it something where you wanted to get adjusted first and then you wanted to jump into some sort of initiative? Or, or how do you think that went for you? Yeah, for sure. I think that was definitely um, just something that came from within. Um, I actually came into Cornell as a pre-med student uh, and I wanted to be a doctor for that exact reason, because I wanted to like give back and help out people. But as soon as I realized that, you know, there's so many different ways that you can help people, uh, that's when, you know, I found finance and access to, you know, things like financial literacy and uh, generational wealth as being a, a great tool to help out others and give back. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I, I guess just now thinking about that, too, uh, what do you think were some of like the early challenges that you went into uh, when you were starting up BlackGen, uh, along with your co-founders as well? Or, or I mean, were there any challenges? Did you find like immediate success or, or how do you think that process went? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were definitely challenges, um, you know, from the, I guess, um, like, you know, from, from one element, uh, there was just a lot of people didn't fully believe in it. And you could kind of sense that. Um, but, you know, I always tell myself, like, if you, if you're not your biggest believer, then nobody else is going to believe you. And so we really had to, you know, really have conviction in Black Chen and really, um, you know, kind of, persevere even throughout like the negative comments and sort of the the lack of support from our from our campus and so that was one challenge uh one hurdle that we had to overcome another challenge just like dealing with administration and um the legalities of setting up blockchain capital so you know we're actually while we are a student investment fund we we're actually set up as a nonprofit. And so it was kind of like a struggle setting up legally. We had to work with different lawyers and it took a long process setting up as a nonprofit. Uh, and then also, you know, the element of fundraising and creating our corporate partnership. Model. That was difficult because there wasn't any other uh, organizations like Black Chen that we could sort of take inspiration from and learn a lot uh, from. Yeah, I appreciate that insight. I I would have never thought of that actually just like thinking through especially the administration stuff and know the legality behind this but i i want to almost go back a little bit to to what you were saying before like being your biggest believer is for sure a really important philosophy that i have really felt for myself like getting started at columbia and also just trying to break into this space as well it's it's really intimidating at first um is what i kind of found my experience to be just like trying to break into finance and and even too i think it almost kind of goes into joining student organizations on campus just because um, I, I'm sure we both acknowledge it too. Like these these spaces are like competitive to break into, like even just joining a club. 
I had no idea like before Columbia, just because in community college, it's like, oh, you sign up for something and you're a part of it. Um, <laughs> I had no idea that, oh, okay, now there's like an application process. Uh, but it's been definitely a privilege to, to be able to be as a part of like this founding team at, at Columbia, at least, and just seeing the growth there and seeing how people get involved. And um, yeah, your, your initiative has definitely gone a long way. So it's, it's really cool to see how uh, we've kind of branched off from, from Cornell as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great to see. I'd say, you know, it's like, if you don't believe in yourself, then nobody else will like, and that's something that I kind of struggled to come in terms with, uh, especially coming from my high school in the South Bronx. Uh, I was actually the first student in 12 years uh, from that high school to get into an Ivy. And so when I did get in, all of my teachers from high school we're saying, Shaq, here you were the big fish in a small pond. At Cornell, you're going to be a small fish in a big pond. And so that scared me. That put, um, you know, just like this big fear and this feeling of imposter syndrome. And so when I got to Cornell, I was just, I didn't really believe in my capabilities and my ability to uh, succeed. Uh, but eventually I did find sort of that confidence in myself. And once I started to believe in myself, that's when I noticed a, a drastic change uh, with my trajectory. And I guess on that topic too, uh, usually that journey, because I, I resonate a lot with like taking time to kind of step back and, and really just convince yourself like, hey, I really believe in like the trajectory that I'm on or my potential up to this point. How much of that do you think also involved like having really good mentorship uh, like early on, maybe going into Cornell or um, even like the middle of like edu your education career. Like, was there anyone that really you think like helped you out uh, as far as like motivation and, and seeing that? Yeah, I mean, a number of people come to mind. You know, I to this day, like truly thank all of my mentors. Um, you know, when I got to Cornell, the biggest thing I think was um, that that led to some of my success was mentorship. Um, so when I got to Cornell, I noticed that there were a lot of seniors who were at the places and, you know, were at, at the places that I wanted to be. And so, you know, I would reach out to them and say, hey, introduce myself and just, you know, want to speak to them and get their advice. And throughout that process, I learned that, you know, it can seem intimidating to like reach out to older people because you're thinking they might not respond to you, but a lot of people just want to help honestly. And so uh, I learned that very quickly. And so uh, my mentors, I include, you know, Michael Kamara, uh, JT Baker, uh, Harrison King, Steiner, uh, Bayed, Nana, uh, and I can go on uh, for a long time, but these are all people that really shape um, kind of just like my drive and, and have allowed me to have provided me with so many different resources and different advice that I've kind of culminated into this one little package. Um, and so mentorship has definitely been a key to my success for sure. Do you find yourself now almost being on the opposite end of that? Like, oh, now I am the mentor of of other people, whether it's like been at your high school or, or like people in Black Gen right now? Yeah, of, of course. I think it's, you know, it, it really is a part of paying it forward. And yeah. so when these mentors, uh, when they reached out and lend their time to to 
myself, uh, they were all like, you know, Shaq, I'm going to help you, but when it's your time, make sure to pay it forward. And so now that I'm in sort of their position, I'm able to pay it forward and just continue to spread that, you know, exponentially, because if I help one person and they can help, uh, if I help two people, they can help four people and then eight and then so on. So I think it's definitely a model paying it forward. And I try to preach that throughout Black Gen as well. Yeah, something about being able to give back, it's just, I, I really see this in, in, in sort of just the, the way like time progresses. It's so easy to like go through a year and not like really take the time to like reflect on, on like what you've been able to accomplish for yourself. But I think one of the easiest ways for me personally to, to really reflect on what I have been able to accomplish is like through mentorship and, and just like being able to help other people. It, one, it like makes you recognize like how far you've come. And then two, it's really cool to be able to share certain experiences or just advice or or just like general tips into like how to succeed and, and just like give that back to somebody else it's that notion of paying it forward um mm -hmm. has been has been a huge part of my life as well and um yeah just like really thinking a lot about how you were saying so many people were there in your corner and have contributed to to what you've been able to accomplish it's 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 a really great motivating feeling as well uh, what do you think your experiences at D. Shaw and Morgan Stanley kind of contributed to maybe the, either the organization of blockchain or, or how you started to see finance up to this point? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think those professional organizations kind of just showed ex like, so with blockchain, there's like the problem from the, the university standpoint and then also from the industry standpoint that we're trying to solve. And that's lack of diver uh, diversity as well as access to talent. And so at the university level, we were able to identify those problems because we experienced that firsthand. Uh, I was able to join different finance organizations and I was the only black person in you know, these large organizations. Whereas I, I couldn't exactly, you know, I could obviously do research online and find statistics, but I couldn't exactly pinpoint the problem until I had those experiences at um, Morgan Stanley and D.E. Shaw. That's when it, came, it became very apparent that this was um, an industry-wide problem. And although surface level, a lot of these firms are saying that they need, uh, they, they've been making efforts to increase diversity and, and they're spending a lot of money and things like that, the numbers still remain stagnant. And so those professional experiences just allowed me to further um, understand how deep this problem is and how massive, you know, uh, the solution of blockchain is. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, a very fair critique, honestly, of like the current landscape, landscape, at least in, in finance, it's something that I've noticed as well. And it's a bit challenging, honestly, to think and it's mainly because it just takes time for people to like get adjusted to the access, this new access, at least to, to certain opportunities. I've definitely seen um, over the last year, at least, um, and especially post COVID too. just there does seem to be like an uptick, a general uptick in terms of just like diversity initiatives and, and getting people involved. One of the biggest things that you just kind of reminded me of is just um, having the awareness, though, of these opportunities is is something that I've noticed, too, that kind of contributes to that stagnation, I think, right now in terms of like seeing better numbers. But um, ultimately, I think like that's 
what like blockchain can really like serve to do is just making making people aware of the opportunities is uh, a start and and from there just like being able to like do well um mm -hmm. is like pretty key yeah yeah and i think that second part is really important right it's not enough to get exposure to resources but then also you know kind of um capitalize on those resources and actually succeed throughout and so that's why with blockchain we really emphasize the education series uh, which is meant to provide all of these like necessary skills that students can take um you know in all different types of finance internships and help them succeed and ultimately secure the full-time offers mm -hmm. so they'll be learning you know accounting valuation uh, dcf analysis investment theses all of these things that are very fundamental to just um, you know building a, a great finance acumen for sure yeah it's something that not a lot of people get exposed to before they even like get started with their their summer analyst position and it's just because everything is well, a big part of it, I, I like to say, is just like everything gets started so early, like recruitment happens yeah. so far in advance. You mm -hmm. can study like a surface level understanding of your technicals just to kind of land the spot. But to actually know what you're doing before the summer even starts is it, it's a bit trickier uh, than that, mm -hmm. I would definitely say. I, I wanted to kind of zoom out a little bit uh, from outside of Black Gen. So you have both buy side and sell side experience uh, from between like your summers. What do you think ultimately pushed you in the investment banking direction? And yeah, how do you feel about that being like the first step in your career post-graduation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a great question. Um, so there's a number of things. Um, you know, D. Shaw was an incredible experience. I just want to start by saying that, you know, I really enjoyed um, that because I, I didn't personally, I didn't know of anybody that you know, had done an internship like that. And so I wasn't able to like seek out mentors and learn from their experiences prior to joining. I came in kind of sort of blind, uh, but I did really enjoy just the, the fact that I was able to um, work on different investment recommendations that the firm actually cared about, uh, got access to a lot of proprietary and just like complex tools and, like before that experience, I, I'd done a lot of investing on my own, but you know, the the resources that I had was nothing compared to, you know, this large institution that, uh, like DE Shaw. Um, so that was also great. And then compared to, I would say the lifestyle was also uh, better, like the work-life balance. Um, I wasn't working as many hours uh, as I was in investment banking the summer prior. However, the biggest thing for me uh, when evaluating my full-time decision is, you know, where do I want to start my career that's going to allow me to learn as much as possible? And while I did learn a tremendous amount at D. Shaw, the learning was very unstructured, um, whereas I feel like in investment banking, the learning is a lot more structured in that you have, so it's, it feeds off of an apprenticeship model. And so I'll be able to learn directly from my associates and VPs, and they'll kind of, you know, guide me through the process. And then also I wanted to develop my technical skills a lot. And so I'll be doing M&A, working on a lot of different valuation models, merger models, and things like that. And I think that'll provide me a great technical foundation to then leverage, you know, whether my future is within investment banking or back to the buy side 
um, or something else. And so I think the biggest thing, uh, biggest thing that I prioritize in making that decision is where am I going to learn the most? That's definitely a really good rule of thumb and definitely seems like investment banking is, is the way to do that. I really agree with you on the sort of just the, the more, more of the structure that exists within investment banking, just between like all the way down to the analyst level up to the MD level. I've definitely heard of like certain firms, like being able to give their analysts like access to MDs and just like that mentorship there. That's definitely something that has like attracted me into the industry as well, just because that's so, that's so huge for me to be able to see like the natural like progression in front of you in terms of like, oh, I know this is like what's next in my career potentially. And I know that if I speak to an associate, they're not too far off to where like they'll, they'll still remember their analyst experience enough to where they can like really point you into the right direction, essentially. As, as far as just thinking about too the the more like niche direction that you took with investment banking, obviously Evercore is like one of the most like well-known and like respected like boutiques out there. Do you think there was, um, was that a, a part of your decision making as well? Like maybe boutique versus bulge bracket or, or was it more so like Evercore really just like felt like the right fit? Yeah. Yeah. So I, it was definitely considering like bulge brackets, like Morgan Stanley and Goldman and then, um, boutiques like Evercore. And, you know, I'd already had the bulge bracket experience and it was great, but I think because bulge brackets are so big, um, you know, there's a lot of like bureaucratic processes and things like that. Whereas at MA, I mean, whereas at Evercore, it's more like pure like advisory. And so at the firm, it's also a lot smaller. And so I really enjoyed the fact that analysts are actually in charge of the modeling and actually do all of the, the groundwork for building these models and become a lot more technical. And so when comparing that to the bulge bracket experience, I know I learned just so much more at Evercore than if I were to work at a bulge bracket. Uh, and then also just the culture is a lot more tight knit. Uh, I feel like because it's small, like you, you have a lot, you have so much access to like senior leaders and MDs and VPs. Um, and throughout the process, like I met so many MDs that, um, we're actually from Cornell and we're so willing to just, you know, grab time and meet with me, uh, even though I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'll, I'll be joining as an analyst. So I feel like the senior leaders are definitely more accessible at a firm that's at a boutique firm. Yeah. And I'll learn just like so much more uh, at Evercore than if I were to be at other firms. I feel like it's very common for people to actually go from a summer analyst experience to, to then get the full-time offer afterwards and have that look forward to. What was the, I guess, full-time recruitment uh, cycle like for you? Uh, just because, you know, I'd be interested to hear more about that. And maybe too, if you have tips for people that are in a similar position where it's like, oh, maybe I'm not going to go back to where I was this past summer. But yeah, how, how is yeah. that process? <laughs> yeah, full-time recruiting was a different like beast <laughs> because uh, so... It happened so fast. Uh, just the other day, somebody asked me like, how long was the Evercore process? And from resume drop to first round, to first round interview, uh, there was two first round interviews and then the super day, all of that happened within five days. And that those five days uh, also overlapped with like my last week at D-Shaw. 
Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're looking so, both places. That's that's funny. Yeah. And so during my, that last week, I had a lot of different like presentations, projects that I had to work on, but then also was still recruiting. Um, and so it was very tough to balance. Um, and then also like with full time recruiting the technicals were just a lot harder because, mm, yeah. you know, at the sophomore level, they can kind of lead you on, uh, they can ask you a lot of behavioral questions and just like assess if you're capable of learning. But for full-time recruiting, they got to know if you're able to do the job. And so, you know, the technicals were just a lot harder than the typical interviews that I had done before. Uh, and so, yeah, I'd say those were the two biggest things, just the timing of it, as well as the technicals. Yeah, and I definitely, I, I almost want to like touch on that a bit more, just the, the way you might have prepared for that. I don't want to say one method is better for the other. Obviously, you know, if you're, if you become a part of a blockchain chapter, you'll have a lot of great technical training, like before your summer starts. But uh, for people that perhaps are like trying to figure out like the best way to study for for technicals, what do you think like really worked for you? Was it the guides, just like watching videos, or even just like doing practice yourself? Yeah, so I would say the four hundred like questions that guide is really good um, because it had it breaks down like beginner, intermediate, and then like more advanced questions. Uh, so I was doing a lot of studying there. I really also like uh, Rosenbaum, like their the investment banking guide that they have. That breaks down like the M&A section, the DCF section really well. And then I also um, had to study a lot on like merger models and like accretion dilution analysis. And so that wasn't easily like that. I couldn't find a lot of that info in the guides. So I had to do like extra research on Google uh, for that information. Also found a, a nice, like a couple like YouTube videos uh, that were also really good. Um, but yeah, it was just a matter of pinpointing exactly what I didn't know and then doing a lot of research, whether it be in the guides or on Google and YouTube to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. That's a pretty good approach to that. And I guess, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to sound like you're in an interview again, but just kind of thinking about all the different <laughs> career trajectories that, that are out there, you know, people obviously can choose between so many interest, industries nowadays. And I, I think tech is definitely one of the biggest competitors right now uh, for, for finance. But why do you think underrepresented minority students especially should maybe consider a career in finance or, or what do you think ultimately helped you make that decision too? Yeah, honestly, I would say just do whatever you think is best for you. I, I wouldn't, I don't want to speak on for on anyone's behalf, but for me personally, the decision between tech and finance, you know, I've done a lot of like CS courses on my own and at Cornell. And so I was definitely considering it. Um, and tech the work, the big lure there is the work-life balance as well as good compensation compared to finance. There's still good compensation, but you're going to be working a lot more. Right. Um, I think the question, it really came down uh, to just the fact that I, I don't really enjoy coding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like co coding is cool and like I could tough it out and 
like get it done but i don't really enjoy coding and like sitting there on my computer debugging things um you know that's just not what makes me happy and it's not fun to me i do really enjoy investing and you know understanding how businesses actually operate and understanding the macro economy and how that impacts uh different businesses different industries investments uh, and so that's ultimately why I chose finance, because although I will be working a lot more hours, I think I'll be enjoying that a lot more than if I were to go into tech. Um, I think also, you know, they're both very lucrative careers. One argument for tech is that in tech, your salaries can sort of, they'll, they'll, they'll start off really high, but then also like kind of top off at a certain level in your yeah. career. Whereas in finance, you could direct, theoretically continue just making more and more money. Mm -hmm. And so for folks that I guess are interested in the like compensation case, that's, that's just something to consider as well. Um, yeah, so I think it really came down to just my personal happiness and like what, what I was passionate about and finance was definitely what excited me more. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really great point. I'm just kind of thinking about uh, my my own journey with it, too. I mean, I, I am a computer science major right now, but I had a similar realization very quickly just because by the time I got started at Columbia, I actually just kind of jumped straight into finance recruitment because it was what I was a little bit more familiar with. And as I was going through it, I'm just I kind of like took a moment to think about it. I'm like, what? Wait, what about tech? Actually, that would we, we haven't <laughs> even like thought about that process, but. I, I think for me, it also came down to that too, just realizing what what makes me happy and what I think like I will really enjoy uh, spending my summer doing and, and just thinking about it afterwards too, um, like post postgraduate career. I, I really like how investment banking at least is still like very much like a people's business. Uh, there's a lot of like client facing work that, that still needs to get done. And um, just like the traditional aspect of it just like really spoke to me too. It's like, yeah, I would really like to be able to look up from my desk every now and again and just like interact with other people and, and try to get business done that way too. Um, but it, it's been very interesting at times, like having to explain myself, because for sure people will see on my resume, it's like, oh, computer science. So why finance? Like why <laughs> this direction? But I think the the skill set is obviously very transferable. There's a lot from CompSci that you can kind of take, especially through a technical lens, like into finance. Um, but what I've really enjoyed about this industry just between networking with a lot of different people is that it ultimately doesn't really matter what you study. I feel like at the end of the day, most firms have a pretty good idea of what kind of people they're looking for. And um, if, you, if you're up for the challenge and at least addressing the learning curve in finance, it's, it's pretty doable, which is pretty great. I think that's like what makes it attractive to me, at least when I think about it. Um, yeah, for sure. I think that's, that's an interesting point. And I've been thinking about this recently. I think, you know, um, like you can study anything and eventually secure something in finance. But I feel like that usually happens at like target schools, which is, you know, it's kind of messed up of the industry. It's like, you know, they, they would rather take you know, a non-finance major from a 
uh, a target school or like an Ivy League compared to like a hardcore finance major at a, at a non-target school. And so I think that's just something that I've realized recently is like they say, yeah, we take students from all majors and things like that, but the sort of non-traditional finance majors, they take those usually from like target schools. Yeah, I think that's that's a really great point. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, it it is like that was something that I was like really shocked to see at first because I think well, I mean, just like starting off in like community college, it, it's just obviously people in community college aren't really thinking about like, oh, how do I break into like investment banking? So in a way, it like shares the sentiment of like, I guess, like a maybe non-target like point of view. But, you know, by the time I got to like Columbia, I think like just hearing the way people talked about like finance recruitment here, it was mind blowing just how much people didn't really they weren't as intimidated by like, oh, where will I end up? It's more like, oh, I have all these options. Which route do I take, essentially? And I'd love to kind of like talk about that a little bit more, um, just as, as far as like the recruitment cycle there. Uh, what what do you think like Black Gen especially could do to, to continue to break down that barrier to where that doesn't really exist as much anymore? Because I know some people, certain firms have even like started to build up a reputation to where I think non-target people won't even think about applying to them because it's just like, oh, no one from my school has ever been there or the firm itself. Like you can tell just from recruitment that they only focus on like target schools and kind of going back to the question, what do you think like BlackGen could do to continue to break down that barrier? Yeah, for sure. I think a big thing that we're uh, doing is eventually, you know, right now our our chapters are founded based on like self uh, reverse inquiries. And so student leaders at different chapters would, as at different universities would reach out to us to establish chapters of Black Gen Capital. Um, and what we're noticing right now is that it's used typically students from just like target schools, like Ivy League, you know, top 20 schools. Um, but eventually, you know, we, we want to establish chapters at, you know, non-target schools to help increase that access and, and close down, down those barriers as well. Uh, because like you're saying, you know, it's very, very difficult for a non-target school, a student to not only learn about the opportunities available on Wall Street, but then also have, you know, just the resources, the financial training to then go and pursue those opportunities. And so we think Black Gen Capital chapters at those schools would allow more students exposure as well as um, provide them with the actual training to then do well at their internships and eventually get full-time jobs. Yeah, and as far as the expansion process then, you know, you're, you're about to graduate this semester and I'm sure you're, you're handing this off to a new national executive board. Uh, what do you ultimately like really hope to see within like the next five years as far as like blockchain's growth or or um, es essentially like the legacy of it? Because I imagine it's like pretty surreal to grow something like nurture it and then to have to step away from it to kind of move on to the next thing. But yeah, how do you how do you feel about that essentially? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, blockchain is my baby. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, so. I think it's it's hard, it's difficult because blockchain 
while we've had two years under our belt and we've done a lot so far, for me personally, I think this is just the start. And yeah. I always say, like, at the Cornell Chapter, I always tell them, like, yeah, like, this is an organization that will be around for the next 100 years. Because I truly believe that. I think this is just the start. And every single semester, we'll continue to open doors for more and more um, underrepresented minorities. But I, in terms of what I hope to see in the next five years, I hope to see, you know, Black Chen go from just five chapters to eventually, honestly, if we project uh, at our current pace, we should see over 50 chapters within the next, honestly, within the next three to four years. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's definitely possible. Also, in terms of, you know, I guess our our organization, I see us transforming from just student-led to now having a full-time staff that's dedicated to helping run blockchain, facilitate, um, you know, chapter uh, corporate relations as well as chapter growth and expansion, similar to how other organizations like SEL and MLT have full-time staff. And so I definitely see Blackshine Capital kind of taking the next leap and becoming an established national nonprofit organization. And then also, um, you know, potentially international expansion. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be super yeah. cool. Yeah. We, we've already had, you know, inquiries from like students in Nigeria, uh, students in Toronto, uh, as well as the UK that have heard about black China and want to get involved somehow so we eventually see some sort of international expansion down the line but we have to really situate uh, our current um, environment make sure that's all set i really like that you just kind of challenge my my perception of where this is going to go i would have never thought about international expansion but that is really exciting to to think about and to to see it within the the next couple of years getting to that level um, I can definitely assure you that, you know, people at Columbia are excited about it. I'm sure people at Cornell are ready to take on the challenge of continuing to grow it too. Um, I, you know, we just wrapped up uh, recruitment for our first analyst class and it was, it was super motivating, honestly, uh, to hear people be so excited during their interviews about the organization. And obviously they do research and, and most of the stuff out there is based off of your chapter, like back at Cornell. So, you know, that was that served as like a really great and like powerful case study for people to read up on. And um, I really felt like the excitement of like our analyst classes as soon as like, you know, we were able to send out like those congratulations letters and everything. And I forget, I don't know. I, I know like myself and the rest of my executive team, like we are like working hard to, to make this work and you can kind of get wrapped up in the logistics of things, but when we take a step back, it's like, oh, wow, we're all kind of like in this together. Like we're the first, uh, mm -hmm. at, at least like the first class, first, first exec team and everything. So, um, yeah, it's, it's there. I, I, I guess I just want to say that the momentum is, is still there and, uh, excited to share like the, the future growth and everything. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the weeds and, uh, for sure, you know, the logistics, but then once you actually sit back and, and scope out you're like wow like all of this just happened and we just started you know like definitely that's one thing that i've been uh you know learning to appreciate 
is just the small wins. You know, make sure to celebrate the small wins because you shouldn't, you know, kind of look towards a goal and believe that your happiness is only dependent on achieving that goal. Right. It's more about the process. And so the process of working towards that goal, I think it's what leads to more happiness. And so if you're able to scope out and observe the process, that'll just, you know, make it a more enjoyable experience. Yeah, agreed. Outside of that uh, good piece of knowledge that you just shared there, uh, I know we're coming up on time. So is there anything that you really hope that people get out of your interview or any just, I guess, last couple pieces of advice that you would really want to share with everyone? Yeah, this is tough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think number one is just, um, I think a big thing that people should just take away from this is whatever idea that you want to start, you know, finance, non-finance related, anything, um, whatever idea you want to start, you have to believe in yourself. You have to have the confidence and the conviction to say, you know, I really believe in this idea and I'm going to work hard to make it happen. And in that process of just taking an idea uh, from just that to now uh, a full-fledged like startup, organization, club, whatever it is, um, really support, surround yourself with a great team. Um, and as I guess a leader of that idea, it's important to understand that you're not always the well, um, you're not always, I guess, the, the smartest person or the person that knows everything. And you have to come to terms with that. You have to be willing to kind of let down that pride and, and take advice from other people, learn from others, learn from your own mistakes and just continue to grow. Because this process of, of starting something, it's great, but it's very difficult. And so you have to make sure to just uh, be willing to learn, grow, and, and really have conviction that things will work out. Um, and if it doesn't, then that's completely fine. Um, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, so definitely, that's one big thing that people should take away. And also, I guess... Obviously, like, you know, growing up from Harlem, uh, a lot of my peers really didn't have any, you know, sense of hope or anything like that. I just want to say if they're listening right now uh, or if there's any folks from, you know, very, I guess, under-resourced communities, um, you know, I just want to say that it, it's, it's possible. Like, there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. tunnel you know, just continue to grind, continue to seek out mentors and reach out to people that are on paths that you want to be. And the best thing that we can all do is just continue to learn from others that have been through it. And so personally, you know, if there's anyone listening that wants to, you know, reach out to me, feel free to contact me on like LinkedIn or uh, email. And I can provide that to Roger to like, disperse that to the audience but feel free to reach out i'm always accessible happy to chat with anyone and just help out in any way i can awesome thanks so much for those closing remarks that that was actually going to be my follow-up question as far as uh how can people best reach you but we'll definitely include your linkedin in the show notes and uh, people can definitely go from there 
Uh, Shek, thank you for just a great conversation, uh, for the motivation as well to, to, to continue this initiative. And I wish you the best of luck too, uh, with Evercore. I mean, it sounds like we'll both be there this summer, so it'll be yeah. cool to <laughs> be on the other end of things. Uh, not, not there quite yet on the full-time aspect, but obviously this has been, this has been great. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for sure. all your words. Yeah. Thank you so much for just inviting me. I really enjoyed this conversation and yeah, I look forward to seeing you this summer at Evercore. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care.